Hey there. Welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel, and in this season we've been talking about my quest, as it would be, to convert or use the chainmail combat rules with original Dungeons & Dragons. I see a light at the end of the tunnel. Last night, I actually finished, I think, <laughs> the rules, as it would be, and now it's just a matter of putting them together in a way that is readable to other people, as it is my intention to share these. But some funny things came up during this project, and I'll probably talk about them more maybe in future episodes, but I kind of want to, while well, it's fresh in my mind, talk about them now. Uh, also, I've had over the last probably month a bunch of call-ins that I just didn't put in episodes because I've been lazy, so I'm going to put some call-ins at the end here. In any case, I started thinking to myself what I personally, as a player, want in a rules system versus what I want in a setting. Now, there are definitely games that are a combination of the two. In fact, I would say that, for instance, 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons has a pretty implied setting, whereas original Dungeons & Dragons does not. Now, in both cases, you could play in whatever setting you want, of course. You could get a pre-made setting once they became available. I guess maybe Judges Guild did that stuff. Uh, on some level, I guess Greyhawk, but that was more advanced Dungeons and Dragons. But anyways, my point being is that when you look at the rules, they seem to very much tell you, hey, here's some mechanics so that you can make your own world. And it is my understanding that Gygax and Arneson didn't actually think that people would want lots of pre-made adventures and stuff, except for for tournaments. And modules were not what they were thinking when they made the system. And interestingly enough, if you look at things like Greyhawk and to a lesser extent Blackmore, while they are additional rules and monsters and such, they don't really tell you that much about the world. It's not like Greyhawk is a gazetteer of Greyhawk. It's more like additional things. You know, you learn a bit about Greyhawk because they have paladins and thieves, that kind of thing. You go from being more generic to more specific on some level, but more mechanically than thematically. So one problem that I've had being a RPG collector, I guess, for lack of a better word, is when I pick up a system, this is true of many OSR systems, that is basically some form of original D&D or BX D&D promoted as grimdark, high fantasy, modern, whatever. And when you open the book up, there's some flavor text of the world, I guess, for lack of a better world, word. Maybe some character classes are slightly changed. Instead of paladins, you have dark knights, but it uses the same spells. The monsters are, for the most part, the same. So essentially, it's the same rule system. And it makes me wonder why people make entire games instead of just making setting books, which to me are about flavor and should have very little mechanics. That's what I like. And why this comes up and why I'm talking about it is because as I got all these rules tightened up, I started thinking to myself, well, okay, I was thinking that like the elves in, in this system and this world would be this. And I, you know, I'm justifying this with the elves with this. And I started making notes of those things. And then I realized that's setting information. And me as a consumer, if you will, of rules, I don't want that. I mean, I want it, but I want it when I ask for it. For instance, a good example would be Dolmenwood, okay? Dolmenwood is, uh, well, I guess now for, for OSC, but it was originally for BX. Dolmenwood does have some rules, you know, it does have some classes and such in it, but it's really a setting book. And you could pretty easily take Dolmenwood and run it with any system. 
you know, using the few Wormskin magazines that were produced. This to me is much different than, let's say, I'm running a campaign in Coriolis, the Third Horizon, which is pretty cool. That system is tied directly into a setting. Like they are merged in such a way that they really wouldn't uh, so easily be separated. To a lesser extent, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea is, again, more of a setting that has system stuff, but part of it. But I think that in both of those cases, the rules are different enough that it justifies an entire game versus just simply being a clone of something else, copy-paste all the same spells, and then we've got some grimdark character classes on top. So where does this leave me? And what do I put in? And what do I leave out, as they say? There's a few things. So for the most part, I'm not going to overly explain why dwarves can see in the dark, for instance, as it is implied using chainmail, whereas in nowhere in the original three books do dwarves have uh, the ability to see in the dark, unless they are monsters, of course. And that is also true of elves. Now in Greyhawk, they add in for vision, I believe, but I'm not using Greyhawk as my basis. So I'm not going to put anything in specifically about how dwarves can see in the dark, except that they... I believe the way it's phrased in Chainmail is they function equally well in both night and day. Things like that I'm going to put in for flavor. Otherwise, I'm going to try to stick to as strictly as possible mechanics. So for instance, halflings get a bonus, hobbits as they would be in, in, in Chainmail, uh, get a bonus to uh, missile attacks because they are accurate with missile weapons. That is a mechanical benefit. Thus, I will list that under my halfling race. I'm not going to write up a whole section about the history of halflings and where they live, that's up to the GM. And the ideas I have for it, I think I will release later as a setting guide once I start actually operating. And I, I think personally, that's what I tend to like nowadays in RPG products. The other thing class-wise that I'm leaving in is there's some information about elves being effective with magical weapons. Um, and also the idea that there is an anti-cleric class kind of hidden in the original books. And that class casts certain spells in reverse. Unlike modern editions where a cleric, for instance, could decide to take cause light wounds. If you look at the way it's written in OD&D, as far as I'm interpreting it, a cleric that is lawful or neutral, thus a standard cleric, is not taking cause light wounds. It's not their spell. They can't have it. It's an anti-cleric spell. If you are an anti-cleric, you cannot take cure light wounds. You take cause light wounds. That is your spell. The other things I'm doing, which could be considered setting and might be easy enough for a DM to change, is I'm handling uh, starting spells and gaining spells slightly different. Well, I don't want to say different because it doesn't actually tell you how you get spells in OD&D. It just has them listed. So I'm having the player's role for spell books both for magic users and clerics. Even though I know that uh, in the strategic review, I guess, it was pretty much clearly stated that clerics have access to all spells. I've decided I don't like that idea. I never have. So for me, that's something I'm changing in the rules, even though that is or could be considered setting on some level. So, you know, nobody's perfect. <laughs> in any case, look forward to, I would say, maybe not the next time I decide to talk here. It just depends on if I come up with an idea. Because GaryCon's coming, so I don't know if I'll put a uh, have time to put together these drafts. But I should have drafts of the combat system in a pretty readable, we'll call it, uh, state. That I can, uh, my I'll come in here and start to go through them, much like I did at the very beginning, where I kind of read through 
uh, but they're much cleaner and neater now. And I figured out a lot of things with initiative and those kind of things. So we'll go from there. In any case, I have some calls here, so uh, we'll play those. Hey, Daniel, Andy here. I'm actually leaving a message in response to your video, not to your anchor podcast, on Bandit's Keep. Um, hello! And that's Amelia also saying hello. Um, I don't think she's got anything to say about it, have you? No. Um, so I'm not actually replying to your main bit, which which um, you might find surprising. I'm replying specifically to you talking about White Plume Mountain because um, I have that original module from 1979, whenever it was, 1980, 1979, I think, 78. Um, and it's always been one of my favourite modules always been one of my absolute favorite modules from from for you know well 40 years now 38 years until i ran it until i ran it daniel so anyway everything about it i loved uh the jeff d art um it's written by lawrence schick as i'm sure you know um it was actually his his um application his job application to tsr it was basically I think he wrote when he was like 17 or 16, God knows, very young. And um, and he just threw in every single idea he could. And it's full of great ideas. It's absolutely packed full of great ideas. But man, it doesn't hold together when you run it. And here's the terrible secret. And I, look, it's probably because I'm a crappy DM. And I'm sure you can make it interesting. But my players got bored. They got bored after about four sessions, and so we just packed it in. And I was really sad about that, really sad, because I, it kind of killed, Dad, killed something. When I go, up- sorry about that. Amelia wanted to get in on the action there. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe if I ran it with a different group, um, it might be better. But you know, that was my fairly long-term D and D group. We knew what we liked, and I felt it would work and didn't even get to the bloody shark tank room or whatever the the manticore shark oh that's so that's such a great room didn't get to the bloody um the room with the with the swinging pendulums in um i did we did do one uh, i i did i think well, there was one good moment i made the sphinx there's a sphinx you meet at the beginning i made him a bit like marvin the paranoid android you know super intelligent and super depressed and he'd been there for, for you know for millennia and that that was that was fun but nah didn't work man not for me i hope it works for you go for it okay that was andy goodman from expedition to the grizzly peaks that was a while ago. Sorry, Andy. <laughs> Finally getting around to it now. Um, I don't, can't remember if we actually talked about this or not in person, but yeah, it's a very weird and interesting module. And I wonder, I'm curious how you ran it. Uh, if you just said, hey, we're going to run White Plume Mountain and drop the players into it. Yeah, I'm not sure it works as well like that. And I, I know that's probably how it was intended to be used. But the way I used it originally, because I actually have run it pretty successfully, um, in in fifth edition, at that, um, I ran it for my my long running group, and I made those weapons that they needed to get there. Instead of it being a quest to go get weapons for somebody else, I made them part of my overall you know long overarching plot to world ending if they didn't do something plot. So that of course gave them a reason to be there, 
And I mean, I think they had a great time. I actually did ask after you sent this message and they all seemed to respond with, oh yeah, it was, was great. Maybe it's just, yeah, it's group expectations. It's definitely not a go in and kill stuff module. And what I will say to anybody listening to this, if you are running fifth edition and you want to run White Plume Mountain, I do not uh, recommend Tales from the Yawning Portal. They basically just copied and pasted all the text with and switched out a couple of stat blocks and didn't change it enough. And the reality is, is that when you're running a dungeon that is about exploration and about that kind of thing, like traps and tricks and stuff, you, and it's an old school dungeon, you need to change it or else a fifth edition party is just going to walk right through it. You know, perception checks and characters just being better at stuff. The, even the length of time, there's a, uh, like you talked about the, the swinging room, it basically has the timetable for the swinging to be, I think, like once every 30 seconds or minute or something like that, that lava shoots up. Well, <laughs> in 5e, they will have made it across the entire thing before it ever shoots up. So I changed that dramatically. I made a bunch of checks. You know, I just kind of looked at it and I was like, all right, they're going to have to make this kind of check to jump across, this kind of check to hold on. If this happens, that's going to happen. And that room was quite dramatic. And I think they lost a magic item down in that lava or boiling water or whatever it is. I can't remember what's down there. Um, the vampire I did not change, unfortunately, and they just walked all over the vampire. He was like too easy to kill. So uh, I, I wish I had changed that. Everything else was amazing. And the weapons became a big part of the story, each one being intelligent, each one having a purpose. Uh Black Razor being uh, quite deadly, of course. And it was, I mean, the the group loved it. And then I, of course, I made it so that the weapons worked together in a certain way. It was kind of like the uh, this whole thing. So I had to change stuff, of course. But I, I think it does have to do with your group more so than anything else. Um, they, they need to be willing to accept, which a lot of modern groups, except they've only played modern D&D, aren't willing to accept the fact that things just aren't going to work. Like that's very old school there. It's like in this room, these spells don't work. You can't do it that way. And uh, it, again, it wasn't the first module like that that I had run for the group. I had run other um, first edition modules. And by that point in the campaign, I wasn't using anything out of the book. Nothing from the normal monster manual. All my enemies had spells that I created for them. So I wasn't doing anything stock 5e. So maybe that's why we had a better uh, run of it than you you seem to have. But um yeah, it's still one of my favorite modules. It is definitely wacky and definitely not for everyone, though. So, yeah, still one of my favorite modules. Hey, Daniel. This is Taylor over at Cleric Square Ringmail calling in from your episode two episodes ago, talking about rolling automatically when encountering something. So, a uh, while back, I was able to play in a game where I was the party thief. Um, I went into it with the same attitude you talk about, where I'm prodding things with poles, I'm rubbing a probe along uh, the door frame, throwing soot, trying to see if I'm finding a draft, but it it started to bog down the game a bit uh, because other players just weren't into it. So what we ended up doing, and I think this was clever on the part of the referee, we established a sort of uh, standard operating procedure. So it was assumed that I was going through this ringmarole uh, as I went along, until we encountered something new, where we essentially went through the whole process again. The game lasted about two, three months, I'd say, uh, before I think the ref got tired uh, and ended up taking a break. But 
it, by the end of that three-month period, we'd established about five different uh, standard operating procedures. I had one for doors. I had one for chests. I had one for uh, hallways. Now, I had to specify that one because it's like you can't assume that we're taking 10 minutes per 10 feet every hall, but beside the point. I figured I'd share. Uh, your episode made me think of that experience, and uh, my experience being maybe a compromise halfway between the two extremes. Uh, in the meantime, enjoying your uh, chain mail with OD&D videos on the channel. Uh, keep on playing. That was Taylor over at the uh, Cleric Toy Ring Mail blog. Uh, check that out, guys. It's really good stuff. Yeah, I like that. Um, and actually, it's something I've heard before where where there's kind of um, in, in uh, I think at Gen Con a few years back, I remember somebody saying like right when the game first started to the DM, uh, you know, that was the thief. He was like, hey, can we set up a standard operating procedure? And the GM seemed to know exactly what he was talking about. So uh, I like that. I think that's a, a good compromise, like you said. Okay, at every door, I'm going to do these things. I don't need to repeat it seven or eight times, especially if the rest of the party's not that interested or for shorter games or whatever. You know, I mean, the, it seems like a good compromise, as you said. I tend to like the the time it takes, but again, it depends on the group. If you've got a bunch of people in there that aren't interested in that, then clearly you want to find the compromise that's going to work for the entire group. Hi, Daniel. Spencer here from Keep Off the Borderlands. Um I just reflecting on what you were saying about the fear mechanic about, um, you know, sanity in Call of Cthulhu, as you know, I've played in a few of Andy's games and, uh, yeah, great GM he is too. Um, as a player, um, I guess it is, if you're being asked for a role, I guess it's clear that your characters are going to be afraid and the role is going to determine how well you can cope with that fear, whether it's going to have a detrimental effect or whether it's going to inform your actions. Um, also, I guess what you've got to consider, in, certainly with a campaign, is how much madness you've been exposed to and at what point your character is going to be pushed over the edge. And I guess that's where the mechanism, the accumulative effect, is taken care of by the system. That was Spencer. Yeah. You know what? I actually, this is good. The way you phrase this, I really like. Um, I think I was thinking, okay, well, I'm asked to make a roll, but I succeed. So that means I'm just not phased by it. But your point of if you're being asked, then there's something going on. So it's less, uh, I guess when you make your sanity roll, it's not like you're looking at the scene and saying to yourself, whatever, there's a monster there. It's more like, you're able to not freak out that there's a monster there. And and so far as campaign play goes, I think that as a keeper, and I've never run a long-term Call of Cthulhu campaign, so I'm not really sure, uh, but I would imagine, or this is how I would do it, is that if, let's say, for instance, um, you've seen a zombie and you have to roll a sanity check and whatever, if you then see another zombie, I feel like as a keeper, the 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 player characters that have seen the zombie before probably shouldn't have to roll. You know, they've seen zombies. Somebody who hasn't seen a zombie should roll. And that helps balance out the idea that, you know, once you've seen something, it's a little bit less shocking to you on some level. Although I'm not sure that it would I would ever get used to seeing a zombie. Hey, Daniel, Jason here, catching up on older podcasts. Unfortunately, your last podcast fell in that category. Uh, I've kind of done that off and on over the years. 
as far as role again, you know, role to see how the character's going to react to some degree, you know, whether it's a skill test or against an attribute or whatever. I'm a big fan of the players mainly only rolling when the GM asks them to roll. I don't like for players to say, I'm going to do a perception check. No, you do a perception check when I tell you to do one. But this is a little bit different because I'm going to say, well, I'm not really sure what my character is going to do because I think the character would do this, but as a player, I think I should do this. So then I'll roll to see, and then depending on that result of that roll, I'll decide whether I'm going to do it or not. And, you know, I've had a thief flee from from danger abandoning his party one time because of one of those roles, which I think was totally in character for that PC, but it was a tough thing for me as a player to do. The other players in the group kind of agreed, no, you, no, that was definitely the right thing. And the GM agreed, or DM, it was the Black Heck is what we were playing, agreed, yeah, that was the right, you know, you did the right thing in character and all that. But then I got kind of got with the DM and we decided that, well, this character is going to just disappear. He's going to retire out of shame for abandoning his party who's carrying this weight. You know, they fleed, fled. But then later on, we had a plan for reintroducing him in the party under disguise, and he was going to come back and try to re-earn his honor. So it worked into a kind of a neat role-playing opportunity. But, yeah, I, I do think it's an excellent technique if if you are like a like just a solid, you, you, you know, player, not so much a role-player, than sometimes rolling against those character stats and and making yourself act that way can help develop that role-playing or acting part of you. I, I know acting might be controversial, but whatever. Anyhow, keep up the great work, and I'll talk to you soon. That was Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast. And, uh, yeah, I think that it's a good idea. I, I do think the idea of if you're not sure what your character would do kind of give yourself a chance you know maybe they'll run maybe they won't run uh and give yourself a percentage chance or a chance in six or whatever and just roll it and then go with it and uh ultimately if you're thinking that the character might do it then they might do it so i don't think you can go wrong there um, i also use this technique if a player says something to me like oh i kind of want my character to do something but i'm not sure if that's meta or if they would know that then together we just figure out a chance that hey you know what Roll a d6. If you get a, a one or a two, your character knows that a troll is susceptible to fire because maybe they heard it in a campfire story or something. All right, Daniel. I noticed on YouTube that you've passed a 1,000 subscribers. Bit of a landmark. Just wanted to congratulate you, sir. I've been watching your videos. I really enjoy them. I think you're doing a great job. Really nice presentation. Considered opinion. Level-headed. Really enjoy it, as I say, and I'm catching up on your podcast now. So keep up the good work. Take care, and I'll catch you later. That was uh, Colin Green from Spike Pit. Uh, not that he needs an introduction, really. Uh, and interesting fact, uh, Colin's podcast was the second Anchor podcast I ever discovered, the first being Tim Shorts. And uh, it's a great podcast. If you're listening to this, I'm sure you know Spike Pitt. Uh, he also has been doing more stuff on YouTube, which is great because I do tend to watch more YouTube than listen to podcasts. So I'm happy to see him there. And thank you very much for the well wishes. <laughs> hey, Daniel, it's Rob from uh, Down in a Heap. It's funny, I'm actually working on my little uh, dragon document this morning. And you are capturing a lot of the, the approaches that... I was, I've been contemplating over the last week or two here. So yeah, I was completely thinking along those lines of using a lot of the 
the, the types of dragons almost as templates for different ages of dragons and stuff. But I'm going to codify it a little bit more and just have some other thoughts. But that is, that's what kind of fueled uh, the whole I idea and planning structure behind this. So, uh, great minds think alike or, I don't know, just craziness. Birds of a feather, <laughs> dragons of a scale. Thanks for the call. See ya. And that was Rob from Down in the Heap. Uh, he's been doing, among other things, uh, a great series on dragons, which I'm very much enjoying. So if you are not listening to that, I highly recommend it. Dragons are, of course, uh, half of the name of the most popular RPG, as they say. So thanks, everybody, for calling in. I'm sorry it took me so long to catch up on them. Maybe I'll have to start doing call-in episodes uh, to do them more regularly, but... Um, as I said uh, earlier, I tend to do a lot more stuff on YouTube. So if you are listening to this and you do not follow me on YouTube, uh, same name, Bandits Keep, uh, please do. Uh, I've been working on a project where I'm building a mega dungeon. So if you're interested in that, go ahead and subscribe up there. And um, here we should be wrapping up this first season of the OD&D Chain Mail soon. And then I think I'm just going to make some podcasts that are more kind of uh, open-ended as opposed to boxing myself into one subject so that I can be a little bit more active on here. Uh, I do appreciate how Anchor is very much a community, and to me, that really drew me to it. Um, I hadn't been into podcasts so much until I found Anchor, and uh, you know, almost immediately after I put my first podcast up, I got voice messages, and I just think that really connects the community and makes it a lot more fun to do, to be honest, so you're not just like talking out into a void. So once again, guys, thanks for listening, and I will talk to you soon.